All right, check one, check two. This is it. Welcome to the Cannabis Coffee Hour with your host, me, Rob Cantrell. Oh man, I got an exciting episode, a great episode. If you love weed, if you love comedy, if you love films, this is the episode you need to tune into. My special guest, one of my good friends, always been there for me. He's been on the Trailer Park Boys. He's uh, had his own film called Super Jaime. He was in the Lego Batman movie. He was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Give it up to one of the most interesting, Funny and stonedest dudes I know, Mr. Doug Benson. Yeah. Oh, Doug. How's it going, Rob? It's going great, man. It's going great. Uh, and I, it's weird for me to run the podcast because I'm always doing your podcast. Doug was pretty much the pioneer of a lot of the podcasts, but. Film trivia, I don't know. I don't know anybody else. Was anybody else doing a film trivia before you, Doug? I don't know. I don't think before me, but, uh, you know, there's certainly a, a, a lot of that kind of stuff now. There's like, you know, there's a million podcasts now. So yeah. uh, whatever, your, whatever your niche is, you could probably find a podcast. <laughs> Especially if you're, if you're into dudes sitting around talking, there's, there's lots of those available. Yeah, man. It's, uh, you know, it's just the technology now. It's kind of cool that everybody everybody should be going towards what they're interested in. And you just had that early on. And uh, yeah, I, I've known you, I don't know, since 2003, 2002, maybe? No, 2003, four, five is about the time. No, right before last Comic Standing, we hung out a few times. Um, but you... Uh, you always, the thing about Doug Benson is I knew him as a stand-up comic. He was on Friends. He was on Comedy Central. And we all smoked weed. And then he did the marijuana logs with two of my, uh, San Francisco buddies of mine. that I, a ta- They were legends when I started out. Tony Kameen and Mr. Arge Barker. Uh, and they did the marijuana logs. But what I found awesome about you, I was just thinking about you, Doug, today. And I just want to let people out there in the universe know like something told you that you were gonna go the weed lane. And the story I heard uh, was, didn't you sit, I mean, I could be wrong because I smoke a lot of weed and you know, but <laughs> it was there's a story that you sat down and actually like wrote your parents and friends like, yo, I'm going all in. Cause weed was kind of illegal. And it, it, like, I don't know, 2003, not in California, but wasn't there a turning point for you, Doug, would you say that you were just like, let's go all green, baby? Uh, Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, the marijuana logs was a huge uh, part of that transition. But prior to that, I had just been like, screw it. I like weed. So I'm going to, you know, be high on stage in my stand up and talk about it and talk about weed and everybody responded so positively to it that I just, that just sort of encouraged me to keep going, even though, you know, in the long run, I guess it could have, I mean, I don't even know what ways it 
may have hurt me to be so out front about uh, weed and being high all the time. But, uh, you know, it, it feels like it's all worked out pretty well. Oh, it's worked out great, Doug. You're a legend, <laughs> man. You're a legend, kid. You don't even know it. Uh, and you got a fat bong. What kind of, uh, I, this is the Cannabis Coffee Hour. I like to keep it simple and down to basics, morning mm -hmm. rituals. Today, everybody, I'm doing this late. I have grapefruit sparkling water, and then I have my glass one. This is from Marley One Hitters. It's wooden and glass. I love this one hitter. Uh, what, and you have a nice fat bong. That's a new one. That's a nice green one foot glass. Yeah, this is from some people named, uh, uh, the pipe is called, the piece is called Encore, or it's from a company called Encore. I always get confused when they name them. But uh, it's nice because it's green, and then it's got this black, uh, you know, thing around here at the bottom. So, like, you know, even when it gets really dirty, it's not, it's not as disgusting as when you have a, you know, a nice clean glass bowl that gets, uh, you know, gets filthy. Like I have this guy that I love, this little bubbler, but it just gets so dirty. Like I, it's due for a cleaning. I need to get some formula 420 and uh, you know, you put it in the bag and then you just shake it and the, and the formula 420 is like sand. It gets in there and it just, you know, cleans out all that, all that disgusting brown and yellow. I uh, know the bong resin. The only thing about weed is that it runs out and that you have to clean out <laughs> pipes, you know? It's just like, but it's a part of the gig. It's a lot like if you're gonna smoke, it's a lot like brushing your teeth. You should clean out your pipes. I've been really good about my pipes too, dude. And you're right, Formula 420, there's other shit out there, but whoever came up with those blue crack rocks is a genius. It's literally, yeah. uh, it, it cleans uh, glass beautifully. And I actually met the dude at high times. Uh, he was already a millionaire. I think he sold it off, but I met him. He, but he seemed just like a stoner that like came up with some shit in his kitchen and the shit worked. Yeah, because you just you just shake it up in a bag for a minute or two, whereas some of the other uh, glass cleaners out there want you to soak uh, pieces in it overnight. Yeah. So I, I'm all about the Formula 420. This is... This thing was yellow as fuck. It was like completely disgusting. And I just cleaned it the other day with Formula 420. Lots look of black. Look, look how beautiful it is. Oh, it's beautiful. It looks like a vase. It looks like you're a classy vase. You need a tulip, a couple of roses, my man. Bombs are, are, are you going, I'm going through a one hitter phase. Glass one hitter phase. But I, I, had a, I had a three foot bong in college. Like I, I'm a classic old school bong hit cat. Are you going through a, just a classic bong rip phase? Well, you know, I'm just home all the time. When you get out on the road, you know, you don't really, it's harder to, you know, bring bongs with you. But in some <laughs> cases I, I still do, you know, I'll just pack it up, uh, you know, in some towels or something. And so it doesn't get broken, but uh, um, I, I'm just really into, you know, glass at home. And, you know, this company Grav has been sending me uh lots of lots of different pieces and they're they're gonna send they're me great. some yeah they're sending me some uh some of their glass uh their glass pre-rolls and uh so i'm excited to get those oh that's sick uh yeah th those guys are amazing 
and yeah, you got to keep your bongs clean, but uh, yeah, you can't. But nowadays, I just, dude, this was the word I heard out of JFK, they're not shaking down. Like you can have two ounces of weed on you flying out of New York now. Was yeah. like the word last, like, like the last time I heard, like last week. And soon, yeah. but California has always been wide open. But I remember the first, like the first week I was in LA, I was with Dan Gabriel and Edwin San Juan in front of the Laugh Factory. And we were doing bong hits in the back of a hatchback car, like right on Hollywood Boulevard. And I thought that was the craziest shit. I was like, oh, and it is still pretty crazy. And it was pretty funny too. Like, cause back then everybody was like hiding out. But these dudes that were doing bong rips in the back seat of a car, like right before doing their sets. Yeah, I, and I like the way you said Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> Is that that's the right street? It's been a while since I've been in LA, but I did it's some on, weed smoking uh, there. Laugh Factory's on Sunset, but you know, close enough. Yeah, yeah, that's it's on Sunset. Uh, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> <laughs> I'm having issues with this bong. Um, but, uh, yeah, Hollywood is, uh, has been pretty, pretty chill for a long time. I like just walk around smoking wherever and I, I haven't gotten in any trouble. Yeah. People can talk shit about California all they want, but at the end of the day, California has always been ahead of the game when it comes to herb. And it's, yeah. It just has. I don't care. I mean, Colorado, when it got legalized, it sprung up. And I used to get weed in Colorado. My friends lived in Aspen right after college, and I visited them a couple of times, and I got amazing weed. But it wasn't the same as when I went to San Francisco. It's just the culture, you know? Like all those bands and musicians and the Fillmore and Golden Gate Park, like hippies have been smoking weed like there since since the beatnecks since the 1950s you know it, american yeah. culture in terms of cannabis all kind of stems i mean it it really not i can't say it started there but it definitely took root yeah well that's you know the, the bay area is where i got you know got indoctrinated got into cannabis because all my all my bay area comedy friends uh, i'd come up from la and visit them and uh they were pretty much all of them were into weed. So it was pretty, uh, pretty prevalent. And then that's, that's really how I, I got into it. You know, I was a late, a late bloomer. Yeah. I didn't, uh, I didn't really get into weed till my late twenties. It's fascinating because Doug Benson is originally, I, I, I'm talking like you're not here, but you originally from, <laughs> I know you well, but you're originally from San Diego and you always were down for showbiz. Like, that's what I wanted to talk about, or your early acting career. Because I've done a little acting, and I wasn't a theater kid, but I do dig it. Like, I am then enjoying, it's a challenge and cool, and going on set is a thrill and shit like that. But you, you had your eye on the prize in terms of movies and TV right out of high school, Doug, like, left high school maybe and then you went right up to LA and started auditioning for shit and and doing stand-up eventually is that true yeah I just sort of uh you know I tried junior college for a few years and uh, just sort of realized you know I never I wasn't a good student in high school so me neither so college so college wasn't going to be my thing really 
And then in junior college, the idea was, oh, I'll just get great grades there and then transfer somewhere cool. But it's still, I wasn't going to get, you know, I was getting perfect grades at junior college, but that doesn't mean shit to like the <laughs> UCLA, USC, places like that that I thought I wanted to go to. Uh, they, you know, it's, you know, I just didn't have the money and I just didn't have the. Dude, you know, I get it. No, I was yeah. never, I mean, I had to work really hard to get over a thousand on the SAT. I was always a C student that had to work hard to get a B or A. So I wouldn't make my mom sad. Like I always, but, and I wouldn't pull her off. Sometimes I would totally be a C student. You know, I was definitely, my mind, I think I was always a creative person as I think you are as, as our careers over these years that we've been doing standup, you cannot not be creative and do standup. Uh, yeah. And it's kind of cool that you just knew, did you, you were just like, I, I want to get into this. Cause you, you were doing some acting in high school. Like you said, were you with well, yeah, the theater I kids? Did. Yeah, I was always a theater kid, like I at every stage and especially high school, because the high school I went to was very, uh, very good as far as uh, the arts. Like, uh, you know, that's why my grades were so bad, because I would miss so many classes for uh, the school paper and debate and choir and drama and, you know, being in plays and musicals and stuff. And like I was just kind of like the kid in the movie Rushmore. I was just like super into all the extracurriculars and paying <laughs> no attention, no attention to anything else. So. Uh, and a little uh, social, a little social too. Yeah, yeah. Well then, so then I just decided out of, uh, you know, while I was in junior college that, to just start going up to LA and just start trying to do what I want to do. And um I realized that, you know, no one's going to ask for a degree to, uh, you know, be, be in a movie or, or write a movie or have anything to do with movie making, really. And then on top of that, once I was in L.A. for a few months, uh, it was just too in my face that it, you could just get up and do stand up comedy somewhere. You know, there were so many potlucks and open mics that uh, some friends of mine, you know, pushed me into uh, going up at the store and I was a huge fan of stand-up comedy. I, I didn't think I could do it because of how much I admired the people that did do it. Yeah. I thought, I thought I can't be like them. So, yeah. So, so that first time just getting any laughs at all, the first time I went on stage was just all the encouragement I needed. I'm like, I'm like <laughs> Oh, if somebody that's never done it can get some laughs, uh, you know, I, this might work out, you know, then six years later, I started getting paid to do stand-up. Like, you know, I had to do a lot of uh, extra work and stand-in work and stuff in L.A. to, you know, keep my head above water and make rent and also get to do, you know, some stand-up uh, at night. But you know how that can be. Like, it's hard to have day jobs, especially long hours, and then also have the energy to go out to the clubs and, and do spots, you know. Yeah, there's just really no easy way. But starting in L.A. is brutal. Like, I, I really don't <laughs> think I would have made it if I started in L.A. I don't think I would have made it. Not that I've made it, but I haven't lasted this long. But I found, I mean, I love what I do and I'm proud of what I've done. So, you know, I, it's all gravy from here. But, uh, yeah, starting in L.A. or starting in New York is really fucking hard. And, yeah, kudos to you. And you started going out for auditions. I would do I would. Yeah. But but your first set at the comedy store, that's pretty heavy, dude. 
Yeah, and uh, when I walked off stage, uh, Louis Anderson was sitting in the back, and he was like, you know, I for, I don't know the exact quote, but it was just something like, you had some funny stuff, or just some something encouraging, you know? It's just like, it's those moments that can really, uh, you know, keep you in the game uh, in the early going, because it's just so easy. It's so easy to not do stand-up. It's, you know, <laughs> it's so it's, hard. It's, it's so it's, hard. It's, it's, it's easy yeah. to just not get up there, you know, like just be, just watch it or whatever. And, yeah, because uh, you're going to eat a dick and it's hard and you're not going to get paid and nobody wants to listen to you. But if you have somebody, and the thing about Louis Anderson was a huge star, you know, he was an 80s. I mean, I remember him killing it. I wasn't a huge comedy nerd, but I knew his bits and I remember his sets from the Tonight Shows. Like, holy shit. And, you know, it was huge. I was thinking about it. I wanted to ask you because, you know, we're kind of near the same age. But the HBO specials, those early young comedian HBO specials. Do you remember Jim Carrey's when he would do My Three Sons? And he would do all the faces. Dude, he literally looked like like his stand-up. I remember seeing him just kill so hard and out of the box. Just, man. Just and he yeah. was the type of cat that you were like, "There's no way I could do something like that shit, man." Yeah, nobody can do what Jim Carrey does. I mean, it's insane. Like, you know, it's just perfect for in Living Color, you know, to be in a sketch show, and then he just really broke out, you know, because of course everybody embraces the white guy on a black sketch show. And, uh, and you then, can't uh, say that. That motherfucker's funny as. Sh- I mean, he is. Oh, I know he is. I know. No, because they're not. Nobody's gonna give him a walk. You can't. You can't yeah. say that. Like, dude, that like Jim Carrey well, transcends all of that. Like he's sure. just a, he's just a natural born yeah. killer. Like hit that yeah. piece. Yeah. I'm just gonna say. Yeah. You know what else touched me was Robin Williams's first special. Remember that HBO yeah. special. I just remember just being so like, that was like, there's no way I could do that. Like that was out of this world. Yeah. But we can't, we can't ignore the fact that we live in a racist country and that's part of why Jim Carrey broke out of that show. (laughs) (laughs) He was brilliant. He was very good. And they, you know, they used him a lot, which uh, worked out great for everybody because that helped make the show a hit, you know? Um, and then and Robin Williams is just so sad, like every year on his birthday and on the day he died, uh, you know, just uh, Twitter and social media just lights up with, you know, just discussing how great he was and, you know, quoting him and stuff. I, I you know, I was lucky enough to get to, you know, meet him a couple of times and uh, it was, he was a ridiculously nice man. So it's, it's a shame that, uh, you know, mental illness uh, can be so uh, uh, overwhelming, you know? Yeah, his, his story is wild and his career is amazing. Possibly, you know, one of, possibly top 10 American actors and stand-up, um, just a brilliant improviser and uh, performer. And I, di- I, didn't, I only had one small conversation, but it was at a lesbian bar at some open mic in the mission when I was starting out and he was going on and, and I'd maybe done it like two years, but he was coming around San Francisco. I saw him at the mock theater, which is in the mission district. And you're right. Like his aura was just pure kindness. It was humble and kindness 
and softness and then it just built up and then it went off on stage but yeah the, i just remember i said hey I, i'm doing stand-up and he kind of didn't want to talk to me and he was like oh you do stand-up in san francisco do you know joe closet and i was like no, i know joe closet he's cool and that was my conversation with rob that was it he doesn't remember it but uh it was but for me that was like you know that's like seeing eddie murphy i don't know i was born in 72 so that all that shit had hit like 84 you know, right when that time where you're absorbing pop culture, at, you know, at 13, 14, 15, you know, and you're kind of coming on your own and you're like, oh, that's the good shit. These guys are fucking lame, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, and then it just keeps shifting your your entire life. You know, when I was a kid, if you had told me, you know, uh, you love Woody Allen and Mel Brooks, well, one of these guys is going <laughs> to turn out to be very questionable character i wouldn't have known which one <laughs> yeah I, I can honestly say i wasn't huge uh woody allen like it was a little too when things get over intellectual like pseudo intellectualism i bum out on but joke writing and filmmaking top notch like awesome but i can't tell you what bananas was about but i've seen blazing saddles like that's been one of the funniest funniest films of all time, like Mel Brooks's uh, Young Frankenstein, how he directed his tones, his textures, how hard he went in the paint. Uh, no, he, that guy, I mean, Mel Brooks is just pure comedy to me. Yeah, and he's, you know, and he's lived a nice life. You know, he's not a creep. <laughs> yeah, he's not a creep, made his money, you know, did, you know, he probably does questionable humor to this taste, but at the same time, it was always human to it. it you know, his shit, as grimy and, and rough or edgy as it was, it always had human, it always had humanity and like super silliness, like how Blazing Saddles closes with a musical, you know? It's just like, wah, wah. it's out there, man. I love it. And that's, uh, that's like one of those flicks that I was gonna say, like you were, people don't understand, you were in fast time as Ridgemont High, as you take a big well, fat bong hit, uh, you were in one of the best American films, prop, I don't know, you know, art changes as time goes on. But for me, yeah, it, it definitely sits in the pocket as a great film. Does it still hold up for you? Yeah, no, oh, it's a really, it's a, it's a really good movie. Like when I was, I'm just an extra in it, we need to say, an unpaid extra who drove up from, uh, Los Angeles while I was still in uh, I probably was still in high school or maybe just starting junior college and um, just drove up and a friend of mine was uh, paid to be an extra on that movie and since I knew it was happening at the mall you know they would they shoot all night when they shoot in the mall so they can you know uh, do it when the uh, customers aren't there and um, so it was the Sherman Oaks Galleria and I just showed up with my friend one night and managed to, you know, cause they, they check everybody and get everybody's names, but somehow I managed to slip in there and be an extra. And, um, that's how you do it, even, Doug. Dude, there's nothing. Even, that's, uh, I love this story. They even, um, they even, uh, gave me a, you know, what I later learned more about as being an extra is if like you bring your own clothes or you're willing to smoke, uh, whatever they want you to smoke a cigarette or whatever on camera 
there's just different things that could happen where you would get a bump in pay. So even though I wasn't getting paid that night, I got a bump in pay <laughs> because I, uh, you know, smoked cigarettes in the, in the scenes. Cause they wanted, you know, they wanted teenagers standing around smoking cigarettes. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I wasn't a cigarette smoker, so I don't do it very well, but you could see me in the background of a, of a scene at the, uh, in the mall at the very end of the movie. Um, but the movie itself is just <clears throat> me and the guy. That is such I, a good story, Doug. I don't know. Let, I, listeners at home, he literally drove it, but you're right. Like they do need extras, but if you want to do it, you just hanging out can get you in the door and a movie set. There is like an etiquette. And if you know how to do the etiquette and you're cool, you know, sometimes, I don't know about nowadays, but back then when there wasn't that hard of security and you knew somebody that, I mean, you, yeah. And then you walked on to one of the most, yes, one of the most classic films of all time, oh, yeah. even if you're no, in the I background. Say, but I was just going to say, it just seemed like an absolute dick around. The movie did not seem like they were making a good movie at all. My <laughs> friend was an extra in it for several nights. And so whenever he'd come home and we'd talk about it, we just imagine a movie that was just like, fast times, beep, 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 fast times, beep, beep, beep. like we just would make fun of that name and just how we just thought it was going to be a shitty teen comedy. And, um, and there was a billion of them at that time. And then, you know, and then when it came out, it was, it was fairly well received, but it wasn't like a smash hit or anything. And, uh, but it was very, um, and to this day, just very honest about like the, you know, there's some unpleasant characters and uh, you know, some, some, you know, terrible behaviors in there that are uh, pretty shocking for a, uh, a teen movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it it and, looks at it without, uh, with a very real lens. Did Cameron Crowe direct that? I know he wrote it. He didn't direct it. Was he? He wrote it. He wrote it. He wrote it based on the movie's not about a kid going undercover at a high school, but the book is about him going undercover at a high school. He looked young for, you know, he looked younger than he was. So as a journalist and author, he decided to go back to his high school or a high school. I don't know if it was his high school, but he went to a high school and then wrote that book and then the screenplay and then Amy Heckerling. Uh, directed the movie and she of course uh, also made clueless which is another you know i mean her career has been kind of hit and miss but between those two movies she's got two of the you know uh, biggest uh, classics in terms of uh, capturing the lives of teenagers yeah those films are like pepperoni pizza like it's not fancy but it's fucking that it's just damn good in terms of yeah, I saw Clueless just uh, maybe six months ago at the drive-in in Brooklyn. They showed it on the screen and it was, it, we had a blast. It just runs as a good, fun movie. And yeah, uh, it's of- shot, and it also has heart and it, you don't feel icky afterwards. Uh, that, you know, it's just, a, it's just, yeah, that director's cool. A lot yeah, of it she- comes from directors. Like just whoever's tone is fucking set is like how the film turns out almost sometimes. Well, again, I, I did not, I could not tell you who was the director uh, when I was on set because Amy Eckerling was, you know, 
maybe it's more about the editing or something, but she is a wallflower. I barely, barely seemed like she was involved, but I wasn't there for very long, but that was just, you know, that was just my impression was like, you know, I didn't feel like I was seeing somebody who's going to be an amazing director making classic movies. I was just like, this lady doesn't even, (laughs) yeah, barely, she barely seems to have a pulse. I mean, she's a very low key person. Yeah, that's what in showbiz, a lot of times the most powerful person in the room has a, you know, you don't even know they're standing next to you, you know, and in those moments, you're like, because they're just, I don't know, some of those heavy cats have such a down to earth vibe. And that's how they they get some shit done, you know, I think that they don't have as much ego, you know, as a director, I don't think if you can understand the not have as much ego and try to get the act, the best out of the actors, you know, is kind of the yeah. vibe you want to set. Like, I forget, does, doesn't the, uh, who, who are the, the brothers, the directors that are brothers? Cohen and, brothers. Yeah. The Cohen brothers. Somebody was telling my buddy, Dan, uh, who's a, uh, he was telling me that they have a very Zen set. Like they're like kind of Buddhist. Like it's just a very super Zen out set. Yeah, I feel like he writes for Eric Andre, but we were talking and he was telling me like, yeah, those guys are super into Buddhism and like just everything's just like simple, no ego, just like, let's get the best out of this fucking scene, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you never hear stories of I don't I do not know what their personalities are, even at award shows. They could not be more uh, low key, you know, and that one of them is married to Frances McDormand. She's a She's a damn national treasure. She's like one of the best actors out there of any, uh, of any, uh, you know, gender. And uh, she's married to one of them. And so uh, it's just a very, very artsy, fartsy existence they live. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you, but they smoke weed. Is that the word on the street, Doug? I don't oh, want you to call anybody I out. I do not know that. I do not, I cannot say for a fact that the Cohen brothers smoke weed. I mean, I like the idea of it, but. I can only, I can barely even think of scenes in their movies where anybody smokes weed, but that doesn't necessarily mean they don't, but uh, you think that would be reflected in the films a little bit. Well, I can't Harrison think of anybody. Ford is secretly a weed head or was a weed head. I don't want to, I, I hate gossiping. I'm Ooh. trying not to talk gossip. Oh, uh, Harrison Ford? Oh, no, yeah, he's a big pothead. Yeah, that's, yeah that's and like, he doesn't lean into it at all. Like, no, he, you he only hear about planes. it. What's that? He crashes planes. <laughs> he's been in multiple plane crushes where he was the pilot and he's <laughs> you know i mean i love weed but i don't know i don't think an old guy that smokes weed all the time is necessarily the best <laughs> best choice to be piloting a plane i think they told i think they grounded him i don't think he's allowed to fly anymore yeah he's getting up there you gotta do it to finally gotta take the keys from people <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, the, he just doesn't—he doesn't know all the knobs in the Millennium Falcon like he used to. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it, Han is runs—you know—renegade. That's the beauty of Han, man. He doesn't care about the law. He's about himself. He trusts himself, and he's going to run outlaw to the day he dies. That's Han Solo, man. He's—he's not—he's yeah, not, he's not either—he's not good or bad. He's just Han Solo. He's just, he's solo, he's running, but he is married to a chick, uh, another well, actress. You know, anyway, you could, uh, you know, you're, you're opening a whole can of worms if you want to debate whether or not Han Solo is a good person. <laughs> but, but I want to ask, to, 
They had to edit in uh, Greedo shooting first to try to make Han Solo seem like a person who doesn't just murder somebody under a table. Yeah. <laughs> but he was dealing, you know, he was dealing sketchy shit when he was he a was. drug dealer. He was. He was some smuggling. sketchy drug dealers with hearts of gold. <laughs> yeah. No, he, 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 he becomes a much nicer person. And Greedo is a bad guy. I, I give you that. But, you know, I'm just saying nerds. Yeah, that dude was scary. And he was nerds, threatening him very harshly. Nerds had a lot to say about that, and they still do. <laughs> I don't want to get into it. I got another thing I wanted to write down, and this one stoners are going to dig. You were in, uh, and this is, goes to Brian Bussain, who was one of the guys that first turned you on to weed is how the story goes. And I've smoked pot with Brian once and he's awesome and amazing. But you guys, I, I, I forgot you were in Mr. Show and I was looking at your IMDb. And I, I mean, I watched a lot of Mr. Show, but I was high and it was back in the nineties. But you were in episodes with the dudes from Tool. One of your episode is Pussifer was too famous or no, no, it, it was the Pussifer episode. You were in an episode with Tool, right? Yes, uh, uh, <laughs> Maynard Keenan was a big comedy fan. And so he would just show up at Mr. Show stuff. And um, eventually they just started putting him in, you know, we used to do like live shows around uh, different venues in LA, uh, sort of practicing sketches and stuff. And uh, there was all sorts of crazy ass comedy at that time. Uh, I used to see Will Ferrell a lot. He was in a, a group called Simpatico. It was him and two other guys. And they just wore these weird, you know, it's the kind of humor Will Ferrell's become known for where he just wears this weird like jumpsuit that hugs his junk too much and he just looks terrible in it. And two other guys dress the same way and they just jump around on stage and do a bunch of dumb tumbling. It's not difficult to do. And then occasionally yelling, Simpatico. It was the dumbest thing. But it was Will Ferrell, early Will Ferrell. So that was... Uh, exciting that i got to be there for that but for mr show as i was saying uh maynard from tool was into it so he would be and another guy now i'm not gonna think of his name brian brian i think from a, a band called green uh, jelly or jello depending on you know before or after jello got mad at them um <laughs> he was also into it so he'd be in stuff but yeah so so he uh maynard showed up in some sketches one time I got to go see uh, at a theater up in Ventura, uh, Tenacious D, Jack and Kyle opened for Tool in a, like in a, you know, like a theater, like, you know, like an old timey theater, uh, <laughs> like the Apollo or something uh, uh, in Ventura, probably called the Ventura Theater or something like that. And it was super fun to see you know, Tenacious D and hang out with them like backstage and stuff. Cause they just sat around like singing all the time. And, uh, and then uh, Tool went on and it was the loudest, most vibrating, intense concert of my life to that point. And then to this day, like Tool should be in very big arenas where there's room for all that noise to, to go somewhere. Dude, they're so heavy. Yeah, it's they're like so super psych. They're the heaviest, deepest, uh, just artiest. And yeah, that Tenacious D, I have to say, in Mr. Show, that was the impetus 
of me getting off the couch when I was 26 years old and being like, I got to get into fucking comedy. Something crazy is going on. I was just in DC. I'm in Washington, DC, where I was born and raised, but I was out of college and I was just hanging. I was working a sales job with a couple friends from college and I always wanted to do stand up. I was a creative writing major. But I was watching Mr. Show and I kept out and it was the weirdest thing, you know, when it thing it came on HBO and I always knew SNL. But he, the trippy thing, as we know, is stand up, stand up kind of died in the 90s, you know, so my 90s. And that's when you kind of first started out and it was so hard for you, Doug. Like, I totally get like so, like Todd Glass. You guys are so funny. There's a reason that you guys are so funny and quick and your jokes are great is because you guys came up during when stand-up just wasn't, you know, that hot. And then Mr. Show happened. And I was like, there's a tone, like that's cooler than I've ever seen comedy kind of platformed out. And then when Tenacious D, I mean, I love musical comedy and metal. I know metal really well. And uh, they just blew me away, man. They got me off the couch. Like, I got to get into this shit. I got to go, go, go. It's, somebody's doing this. Yeah, it was super fun to be around. I was like, um, you know, mostly like an extra and a, you know, friend of the show who would just come to all the tapings and hang around. And then by the time I moved up in the ranks and they started wanting to use me as a writer on the show, there was a couple of a couple of near misses because Tenacious D was going to have a show for a little while and there was going to be another season of Mr. Show. This was like a few years after the first show ended. And I'm not talking about the thing they did more recently. I didn't have anything to do with that. But there was, you know, there was a time when I was going to write on those shows and they both, for different reasons, fell through. And, uh, you know, that again kind of pushed me back out into kind of doing my own thing and doing stand-up and Last Comic Standing and Super High Me and all, all that stuff. Like, uh, you know, it just became... Yeah, those writing jobs, very, dude, I'm doing packets now. And, you know, I love it. And you just can't, like, especially Mr. Show got to be a hot fucking show. So if you got that, I mean, you would have been, that's really, like, that's the upper, upper echelon of comedy writing at that time. Like, one of the best HBO shows that was out there. Like, that's a awesome gig like that's a chance that that's just whatever but you probably wouldn't have yeah you wouldn't have done stand-up you wouldn't have toured you wouldn't have made your own movies you wouldn't have done a trivia you know you don't know no, how the path goes what would have i don't know yeah. what would happen i was just the, the, the point i was just going to make though was just that you know i just i've made at several junctures like i would have done those jobs but also those jobs would have been you know they wouldn't have lasted a long time and and that Mr. Show was supposed to be their last season and who knows, Tenacious D might have been one and done, who knows, but you know, who knows where, how long it would have lasted or where it would have gone. But in general, I just sort of, uh, I did a lot of writing uh, in my career, but I never like, uh, I never really wanted to be like on staff on a show. I, you know, I just sort of more or less flit in and out of things or write like, you know, promos for the WB network. But um, Dude, just, you're yeah, one of the I, best I joke writers out there, Doug. I mean, you're up. People give Mitch Hedberg, but I've, you know, you have great, great one liners, a million of them. And you you love the the form of joke, like not to go comedy nerd because it's never that funny. But you do love the form of jokes like you are 
Yeah, you. I, I'm surprised you never got for a monologue because you you do write shorthand like all the time, all the time. Uh, well, I got tired of you know. I, I used to have long bits in my act, but I got tired of uh, you know. I just started feeling like I was in a play or something, and you know, you can change the words around here and there, and you know, try different things, but. You know, essentially, once you've decided, oh, this is a story in my act and I'm going to do it until I record it for a special. I just don't like that process. I, I don't I don't care about it. You know, like I, I know I can do it and I have done it. So, like, I'm trying to figure out other, you know, other ways uh, to do it. And like you said, the, the biggest focus I have is just on on the joke, but also performance of the joke. I, I was just glad that my writing career kind of had fits and starts and never really became a thing because, and in some cases I chose, like I was like, well, I would rather just keep doing stand up and auditioning for things and see what else I can make happen uh, other than, you know, being a writer. My friend told John, uh, who a lot of people hear about all the time because he's also a good friend with Sarah Silverman. Shout he out to John. Yeah, he and I used to, you know, he and I wrote a bunch of stuff together. We'd get like, you know, script deals and we'd write a sitcom and then we'd get a million notes and then they, you know, we just never got a pilot made, but we, you know, made money and we'd work well together. And That's brilliant. Uh, but it was looking, you know, he, uh, when the Sarah Silverman program came along, uh, it, was, it was looking like the two of us would be like writing partners on that show. And I decided that I just didn't want to be in a writer's room all day, every day. And I still thought I, you know, could get a career like on camera or do more stuff like, you know, that I'm more in charge of. And then, you know, it worked out okay. But that show was great. And, uh, you know, I got to be on it once. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what point I'm trying to make other than I need to take another bong rip. <laughs> yeah, take another bong rip, my man. Uh <laughs> No, dude, stand-up is a trip. I was going to ask you, because, yeah, when was the last time you did stand-up? Are you going, uh, let's stay current, man. When was the last time you got on stage, and what's the vibe? Are you going a lot, COVID? I'm dodging Delta. I've gone out a couple times, but I don't know. Do you want to ask a few more questions? There's so many questions in there. I don't even know where to begin. I the know. I, 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 I could talk to you for eight hours, so I'm trying to get it all out. Sorry, Doug. Yeah. But I just don't, I can't answer all those questions. What was the last time you did stand-up, buddy? Yeah, the last time I did stand-up was a couple nights ago. Like, stand-up is wild, it's wildly back. Like, I can do as much of it as I want right now. I don't want to do a lot yes. of it. I'm, I'm taking baby steps. But, like, LA, Los Angeles had all these outdoor shows springing up because of COVID, and they were lasted all last summer. And then we had a very mild winter. So there was even outdoor shows in the wintertime and then spring. And then now all the regular clubs are back open, but there's still all the outdoor places that have opened up. Plus more outdoor places are opening. It's like, it's wild how much stage time you can get in LA right now, especially if you're like, you, you know, you can walk in and go, Hey, it's me. <laughs> but you know, a lot of my, spots are like scheduled and stuff and i don't really i'm not really drop in guy anyway i don't really do that but but it's you know and i can do as much road work as i want but i'm you know just easing back into it doing like you know last month i did like one road 
gig this this month I'm doing one and then next month I've got like three things and then you know I'm just like progressively uh getting more active but who knows where this is going you know because the unvaccinated are just really running around unvaccinated so that's it up people man this is life or death you know i love life as you know doug i'm you know i love living i love being i love talking to you and i love coffee love coffee (laughs) cannabis cannabis life life family family friends friends comedy Seinfeld. Yeah, I like that. I was more Night Court, but Seinfeld's cool. Holy shit, Night Court's coming back, you know. Dude, that was a great show. John Lithgow was dope, man. You got a Lithgow vibe, homie. John Larroquette. (laughs) John Larroquette, that's what it is. Larroquette. Yeah, John Larroquette was great on that show. And I think him and his character are coming back. You know, the judge has died. Harry Anderson died. Who was a stand-up? he was this magician stand-up. He taught me one of my favorite things that I do in diners. If I want to horrify and disgust people, uh, what you do is you you pick up and you palm one of those little uh, creamers, you know, that has the paper top. Yeah. You, you you put it in your hand, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> like you put it in this hand, right? And then you go, "Oh man, there's something wrong with my eye." And then take a fork off the table, and then jam it into the. Uh, <laughs> into the paper part and it's all this white shit just starts shooting out of your eye and everybody's horrified i love it it's really you gotta you, you gotta pick the right moments to do it you can't just that's do it harmless anymore. that's not fucking that's that's harmless fun man that's great horror like <laughs> i love that shit like i'm not into jackass but that's like that's you know that's the classic Mm-hmm. It's, safe, <laughs> you know, it's safe jack it's safe jackass i've never hurt myself doing it although now now i think about it like just even doing this with a fork like jabbing it near my eye i'm, I'm less comfortable now than i was in my youth but like when i go out you know how you end up at a diner in the middle of the night when you're out on the road doing comedy you're with the other comics and that kind of hijinks it, it never gets old because you know dude, you're that always, kills. Oh, you're dude, always the diner over a tuna melt that's gonna that's gonna kill you're gonna get the biggest laugh of your life you're always meeting new comics all the time and they don't, they don't know. They don't know Harry Anderson. They didn't learn that trick from him. Nah. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know him either. I mean, I think I saw him once or twice, but um, yeah, I, I definitely saw him or, or, or introduced him. Cause I used to early on in my career, one of the first places that hired me to MC was this place on the West side called Igby's. And uh, the guy who owned it was, you know, very nice to me and let me, let me, he let, like very new comics he let them host if he saw some something in them and then eventually he'd start giving you spots so that was like one of the main places that i uh not only cut my teeth but like remember earlier when i spoke of louis anderson like i can remember every comedian who i admired at the time who would come through when i was hosting and would see one of my bits or my set and say something nice like those, all of those really stick with you and they really, they really, uh, you know, move you forward. Yeah. Who was uh, nice to you? Who gave you good vibes? Uh, Dana Carvey. Oh, the best. Super nice. the king. Yeah. And uh, another one, a guy I admired a lot before I got into stand up, and I, I still do. He's legendary, but he's not as well known as, you know, 
some other comics, uh, a dude named Rick Overton. Yes. Uh, was super nice to me at AB's one time. because he One of the best kind of improvisers around. Yeah. And he kind of broke down from, he like said back to me, oh, I see what you're doing with your act. You're doing this and this and this. And it's, it's, these are all, you know, this is a fresh, this is a good way to do what you're doing. So he was super nice. Uh, you know, there was a bunch of, uh, you know, cause like I said, I'd be emceeing. So all these great acts would come through, but then one of the people that I really started like hanging out with just because he likes the hang and he's very nice to young comics uh, is uh, Bobcat Goldthwaite. Uh, I ended up spending a lot of time with him and me and Posehn and, and Goldthwaite, the three of us wrote a movie script that never got produced. Uh, so we spent hours and hours together, the three of us writing this movie script. So it was, it was fun, but then when it never got made and we never got any money for it, uh, that was frustrating, but uh, it was still just hanging out at Bobcat's house dude nirvana's <laughs> opening act yeah well we we went on that we went hossein and i got to go see the in, in utero tour show at the san diego sports arena and we saw baby francis bean backstage and we saw uh courtney all, all those and then bobcat's close to that whole band and so even after uh, kurt cobain was gone uh one time uh hossein and i were in seattle this felt but, like a thing you do. But did like you see Kurt that night? Was Kurt there? Yeah, Kurt was there walking around in his pajamas looking kind of out of it. But uh, yeah, you know, that's when they were at the height of their fame. That's yeah. really hard. But I, I do bring the that up because I think that's so cool that Bobcat did that. Even yeah. though one of the, I mean, he was a part of one of the <laughs> goofiest comedies, Police Academy of the eight, early 80s was a huge hit. And I saw it at the movie theater. I loved it. The human beatbox dude, Bobcat killed. His character was awesome. That was, those movies, because I was like 10, 11, 12, was like the funniest fucking things ever. And then to go on and uh, open for Nirvana is just fucking sick. Yeah, well, they opened for Nirvana because Kurt Cobain was, as you know, a very troubled person. And apparently nothing made him happier than watching how savagely his audience, the audiences would treat Bobcat because Bobcat would host the whole show. So he'd come out, do some time, bring out butthole surfers, do some more time. They take a break, comes out, does some more, then brings on Nirvana. And everybody's just waiting for Nirvana for the most part the whole time. So they just scream at him when he's on stage. And that would make Kurt Cobain happy watching Bobcat uh, eat it at every show. Yeah, there's all these stories about people <laughs> trying to open for the Ramones and like they would <laughs> boot off in like a 30 seconds. Like the crowd would be like, because yeah. it was like the more aggressive the music and the more rabid the fan, the more they don't want you there. And I've I, been I, in that I, situation you know, in opening fans. for aggressive band and shit went wrong. This guy like spit at me and told me uh -huh. to fuck off and all this shit. It was the worst yeah. gig. And you yeah, think no, you're going to be no. a rock star, but if they don't know you or don't really care and they just want to see their band, yeah. especially yeah, before that's, uh, that's, social media. That's, yeah, that's like fans of anything, dude. You're not, it's not, rock and roll is not isolated to that. There's, there's, there's fans of knitting that are that intense uh, when they show up at the, uh, the, the Super Bowl of knitting. But <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's just, uh, 
that that's the thing is opening for somebody else can be sometimes the crowd's in a good mood for what it is they're going to see and you can kind of ride that wave you know and you get lucky but oh yeah but like opening for a band fucking sucks because nobody's first of all they never say there was going to be a comedian before the band like maybe in vegas or something they do but like everywhere else it's just a surprise and so everyone just stands there and you know, or sits there and continues talking amongst themselves. Like you're just, uh, you know, like background noise or whatever. And uh, that's if you're lucky, you know, cause they could also actively hate you and keep yelling, get off the stage. Like you have to say like, right early on in your set, I've seen this come out of my mouth and I've seen other comics do it too. You just have to be like, Hey, I'm going to stand here and talk for 15 minutes. The band <laughs> is not going to come out during that time, whether yeah. I'm talking or not. They're not coming for at least 15 minutes. So shut up and let me do my thing. <laughs> and sometimes you can turn them. It's not always. I mean, every night is a different gig. But what I was going to go with the positive, Doug, on this was like the opposite of that is opening for good comedians. Is like that's when it's like an awesome crowd. If you're a good stand up and the comic you're opening for is good, uh, it's so much fun. Doug, you took me on the road. You're one of my favorite comics. I'm just being sincere. But yeah, opening for you was a blast. It wasn't even work because you're, you know, you're a great comic and open, you know, I just would have fun with your crowd it was smart and silly and, you know, and stonery. And the same was Mitch Hedberg was like, those were the funnest. And Tracy Morgan, you know, those are, I've opened for all you guys. And and I need that. I do headline and I'm going out of there, but open for cool comics rocks. Yeah, it could be super fun. You know, uh, it's nice, uh, nice way to, uh, you know, help other comics and, you know, one, especially ones that are your friends. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's not a, it's not a completely broke system, but there's, there's certainly a lot, a lot of aspects to it that are still, uh, unfair to uh I, i'm doing a show tomorrow night in uh north hollywood where i'm the only white person on the show or I, I i should say that i think there's a white woman but i'm the only white male on the show and i was just like and it and it just it looks really weird but at the same time uh i've been on some shows where everybody's white and that also is uh you know I just, I, I, I'm hoping everybody figures out how to diversify it all, uh, you know, because the audience is there for it, you know, whatever any person is, whatever minority you are, you want, you want to be represented in a humorous way. Yeah, man. I think it's going to be a good night. I like to mix it up. I like going in front of different crowds. It's always fucking different energy, you know, it's a stand-up I don't know. I, I love opening for Tracy. I opened for JB Smooth at, at Bonnaroo. It's just like if you open for the same type of cats all the time or the same type of crowds, it's just, I don't know. I, you know, I come from San Francisco and you weren't a real comic in San Francisco until you could play the punchline and the mission. Like you just had to be an all around good comic. Are you going to play the punchline anytime soon, Doug? I'm doing Doug Lowe's movies at the Sacramento Punchline. Oh, in, the best! In September, no, in next month in August, and uh, but I don't have anything on the books in in the city yet because there's some you know there's some things in in the works you know that uh, 
it's pretty competitive up there in the Bay Area with all their festivals and whatnot. You know, they have Sketchfest is probably going to be back next uh, January. And so I, I usually do that. So that's why it's kind of a weird period figuring out if I could go there between now and then. Yeah, doing shows inside theaters. I know, man, I did, I've done some stand up, but it's been hit and miss. And that's, I, I need to get you out of here. We're running, I don't, I need, it's over 45 minutes, but I wanted to oh, say, shit. I've been having a blast when I do go up. And, but I also think, I love how the world's evolving, like weed is getting legal and everybody's podcasting. What do you think podcasting is playing with stand-up now? Don't you think it's a kind of a different game on stage? Like, or do you, are you still going, dude, I'm just writing jokes and I'm going to go up there with a, with a piece of paper, spit out some jokes and then do some crowd work and do a couple classics. Yeah, I don't, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a process of, uh, you know, getting up there and doing you know when you went, went months and months with you know I, I do occasional shows during during the pandemic but like now I'm finally you know maybe gonna be doing three or four spots in a week and then maybe a you know headlining somewhere uh, on the weekend and uh but like it's still just like I know lots of comics do that thing where they build up an hour and then they tape it you know and make a special then they start from scratch so like for the first few weeks they tell the audience you know hey i'm working out stuff trying to you know build up for the next hour but i'm just like i feel like i just want to be like writing new stuff all the time and getting getting rid of stuff whenever i get sick of it yeah at my own at my own pace individual jokes not like this hour i did this hour goodbye hour i i don't i don't see the point of that at, at this point for me you know but that's the great thing about it is like there's different approaches you can take at this time and podcasting it's interesting you know how every comedian now has a podcast so like which one is helping you know which one's feeding the other which one's helping the other one more podcasting and stand-up and i think people have been stuck inside for so long that that helped podcasting in a lot of ways but now now that people are going back out, they're anxious for the live experience. So that's helping live comedy shows because almost every show I've done in the last month or so, the audience has just been in a great mood just because they're, you know, they're doing it just because they're excited to be out. And, and in a lot of cases in a safe environment, there's this place in the middle of Hollywood that's just, it's a venue that's just, it has no roof, it's just outside. And so they've been, they've been killing it because, you know, all the, big names that are in town just cruise by new spots a lot of bill burr action you know bill <laughs> burr's really bill burr's a really big deal now um, i know well he's he's done this podcast i've known bill before he popped man uh, i mean he was really he was a strong new york he was one of the top new york comics but i knew him before the big o and a thing we did spots at the boston comedy club but uh yeah he's amazing it's just a. Uh, I yeah, stand up is blowing up right now. That's what it's not. I don't know if it is. Yeah, I don't want to jinx it, but you're right. I always look at the pot like anything bad. There's always something good out of it, I and mean, I guess the good out of it could be you know audiences are going to be fucking awesome for the next year and a half if we can dodge this fucking delta and get these fucking 
I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get too mad, but man, just look at your brother and sister, everybody. You know, I love life and we all have family and we in America, you know, you're supposed to go for your dream. You know, you're supposed to, uh, your, your pursuit of happiness, you know, that's what we're all about, you know, and going for your dream and pursuing happiness, you're fucking cock blocking our happiness. You're cock blocking your happiness. You're cock blocking the world's happiness. So, I mean, you know, it's just fucking, you know, smarten up. Look at the fucking stats, brah. <laughs> no, but that's to look at, you know, anybody can look at whatever stats they want to see. I know. And I, yeah. And anytime, like, anytime I'm pre, you can't tell anybody. So you got to do it by example. And my example is I'm vaccinated. I got no problem with vaccinated. I think life is a gift. I know death is going to happen. I got no problem that it's going to happen, but I want to ride this wave my way, you know, not my way, but just try to ride it with quality. You know, we all want to die in decency and, and live life to the fullest every second that we can, you know? And it's like, Oh, you're going to throw a fucking damp rag on this shit, but good shit happens. We get the podcast and weed's getting legal. <laughs> there's, uh, there's a perfect summary yeah. of this. How long has it been? It's been an hour, Doug. Oh, I love you, bro. It's been an hour. Now I got to go. You got to go. Uh, but thanks, Rob. This was fun. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for doing it. I love catching up with you, man. This is a blast. I appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody check out Doug on his website and Twitter. He's hilarious. Peace. <laughs> Bye. Bye.